Um, and, and so people would get up the courage and they'd say, are you a universalist? And I would say, oh, oh, it's much, much, much worse than that. It's much worse than that. I'm John Stevens, and this is Pod Russell, this is Pod Today we have um, a writer and an author, a speaker, really a public theologian, and a, a person I've followed for the last 20 years. I heard about him, uh, Brian McLaren, when he was uh, when I was in uh, at Fuller Seminary through a, um, a mutual, um, I guess it was a friend of his as a mentor and professor of mine named Ray Anderson, and um, and so um, he's just I, he's been able to articulate a Christianity. Um, that is both deeply orthodox um, and and maintains a real deep reverence of Scripture while um, moving and understanding some of the cultural um, inhibitors and some of the ways that it constricts culturally. And it's able to articulate that for, I think, a deeper freedom. And so I have recommended his books um, the last um, 15, 20 years, and I just, I'll continue to do that. I think it's a great thinker and super generous with his time. Yeah, too. absolutely. So I, I, I think we should call him in a couple of weeks and see if we'll come back. It was that great. Yeah. So, you yeah, know, absolutely. <laughs> Talk about the iceberg and That's yeah, right. all that. I'd love to see if he'd come to chapel at some time and, and teach and preach for a weekend. I mm-hmm. think he would be a really great person to be in, you know, this dialogue with yeah. question wise. So yeah. I think folks will enjoy this. Absolutely. We're really glad that that you're here, um, and just thanks for your time, spending time with us, you know, to talk a little. And uh, I I first knew heard heard your name from Ray Anderson at Fuller, and um, and I took every class Ray Anderson taught, and then I TA'd for him for three years, and oh my. just could not get enough, and really used his his systematics as a kind of as a as a workbook for ministry as I was planting um, a church and it was just, it served me really well. I mean, he's, well, that tells me a lot about you. You were smart to know there's a guy who's not only a professor, but kind of a mentor mm-hmm. uh, and really a, a trailblazer. Yeah. I, I'm so glad I got to meet him while he was still with us. Oh yeah. my goodness. Yeah. What a, what a good spirit. Yeah, really. In so many ways, I feel like that you've continued on kind of his praxis of thought and uh, and, and where, where I feel like in some ways he came up short just as a, uh, a child of his own theological kind of upbringing and culture. You've been you've carried that on in a place he couldn't. Um, well, I, I you may know this, but you may not. Um, I, I was. I got at Fuller, uh, and Ray uh, and I met when I was there, and he really kind of said that to me. He said, "I want you to keep going, you know." Please. And he was just so encouraging to me as kind of a younger brother, and it was yeah, it was very meaningful. That's fantastic. You you cut out at the very first part of that before the Fuller. What what, what was the connection? Oh, um, I I taught some short courses at Fuller uh, intensives. And so when I was out there once, he contacted me and said, you know, I read a couple of your books. I'd love to get together. And I had read, shoot, what was his book that talked about Jerusalem and Antioch? I forgot the. Yeah. Was uh, it Emerging Theology for an Emerging Church? Yes. Yes. Yeah. And uh, and I guess he was working on that at the time Mm -hmm. and asked me if I'd read the manuscript. And then I guess we stayed in touch and met up a, 
uh, a time or two more. And yeah, I just felt very much like here was an older brother putting his arm around me and saying, you know, go get him. It was very, yeah, yeah very sweet. That's awesome. That's that's great. Um, really have enjoyed kind of your 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 newest book, which is uh, really trying to help people navigate whether they stay in the church or go, and if they stay, how to stay. Um, could you talk just a little bit about that and how that emerged and why you wrote that? Sure. So really my whole spiritual life has been uh, living on the border <laughs> border of, of Christian identity. Um, I grew up in a very strict fundamentalist setting. My parents were warm, loving people, but the kind of denominational uh, uh, tradition I was in was uh, had a, a kind of brittle strictness and judgmentalism that, you know, was very typical of fundamentalism mm -hmm. in all its forms. Add to that, if you know what restorationism is, it's sort of a restorationist mindset that we're the, the group that finally got the last detail right. which <laughs> produces a kind of almost a naive arrogance, like, uh, well, somebody has to be right. I guess it's us, you know? <laughs> so, um, uh, and I, uh, for me, my first real conflicts came up uh, really as a child because I was interested in science. Mm -hmm. And I, I could tell that the, my religious community uh, did not like science. <laughs> so so uh, <laughs> I, I remember being, you know, like a kid thinking as soon as I'm 18, I'm out of here. Yeah. Um, I ended up having a very meaningful kind of spiritual experience in my teenage years that kept me in the faith. I ended up... Mm -hmm becoming a pastor. And, um, but even through all those years, I always had a soft spot in my heart for all the people who would just come to me and say, am I the only one or does this not make sense? You know, and they, they might come with a question about atonement theory or a question right. about heaven and hell or a question about God planning sufferings. And, and, you know, they'd say, this just doesn't make sense to me. And I, I had to admit it, a lot of these things made no sense to me either. So that's really just been part, part of my life. And in many ways, it's why a guy like Ray uh, meant so much to me, because mm. uh, the things I started writing about when I turned 40, I'd certainly been thinking about since I was 16. And um, it just takes a long time when you grow up in an authoritarian religious setting to get the courage to try to speak your truth if it doesn't fit in with uh, what's expected. Yeah. 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 Can you talk a little bit about that um, journey? Because it, it's interesting to me, I mean, growing up as a fundamentalist evangelical kind of that, that progression that you've made to where now you are part of the living school and, you know, Richard Rohr's, uh, you, and so many other things that you are doing and how you're thinking, that progression um, seems to have a continuity within it. Like you haven't just kind of chucked it, but you've, right. uh, and all along the way, it seems like you've integrated in a way that is, um, um, is integral to some things that are core to you. Can you, one, I'd like to know about how uh, that yeah. journey and then two, those integral pieces, you know? Yeah. Well, let me see if I can put those together. It's yeah. a, a okay. really, um, it's an interesting question, uh, Matt. Um, so one way maybe I could say it is if I were to look back 
at the treasures that I got from my fundamentalist Christian background. Mm. Um, uh, one was that we took the Bible very, very seriously. And that has stayed with me. I, I just preached last Sunday, and I remember after my sermon, I just thought, what a fascinating book the Bible is. And I can't believe people get the chance to really think about it and get other yeah. people thinking about it. And, yeah. you know, uh, but because I took it seriously through my life, I no longer could take it literally. Um, so they taught me to take it seriously and they told me to take, take it literally. I kept the seriously, but not the literally, um, because the literal kind of interpretation I realized had its own history and story and agenda really um, behind it. Mm. So uh, that's one sort of continuity and discontinuity. Another is that my heritage was very pietistic. This was not one of these, you know, they're sort of hyper Calvinist groups that it's all in the head. Um, in our community, there was a deep heart dimension to it as well. Mm. And so hymns were very, very important and savoring the the meaning of hymns. Well, when you savor the meaning of a hymn or a psalm for that matter, you're really engaging with poetry. And you're not just engaging your rational intellectual part, you're allowing yourself to react and respond um, to the text too. And that kind of heart orientation, um, uh, an integration maybe of head and heart and gut, so to speak, mm -hmm. um, uh, that stayed with me. And in fact, really has a deep continuity uh, and why when uh, Richard Rohr and I became friends, I felt such a deep, deep uh, affinity. That's something as a Franciscan that he had as well, a deep, uh, certainly a very alive and active and perceptive and sharp intellectual life, yes. but but not at the expense of heart and intuition and experience, but mm. integrated with it. So that would be a second place where there's kind of uh, continuity and um, and discontinuity. I, I, I maybe this is just one other thing that comes to mind. Um, our uh, the, the denomination and, and sort of whole movement of fundamentalism was really obsessed with heaven, going to heaven after you die. <laughs> yeah. Um, everything was about heaven. Um, and, uh, and that's a place where there was a major discontinuity for me because mm -hmm. when I was a pastor and I actually had to read the Bible and preach from it. <laughs> and, and when I developed a habit of preaching through books of the Bible, so I preached through the book of Exodus or through the book of Genesis or through the book of Matthew or through the book of Romans. And when I would preach through, and I didn't just get to cherry pick a verse and preach a sermon on mm. it, but I'd have to try to get the argument and, and see all those passages in between the verses that people like to pick out a brief yes. sermon on. When I saw all of that, I realized the Bible is not an evacuation plan for heaven. It's a transformation plan for earth. Yes. And so that's a place where there was kind of a, almost a 180. Um, uh, to me, whatever we believe about the afterlife is primarily important in the way that it energizes us and gives us courage and willingness to sacrifice and even suffer in this life for the good of this world and our neighbors and future generations. I love that. I love that. That I think that was the the thing about Ray's theology and then your writings that have helped me articulate and in some ways almost have to um, like 
one of the reasons I've stayed Christian is in some ways I've had to give up heaven to become more human, right? That there was this sense that yeah. it wasn't to get me out of the world, but to embed us deeper within a world that God loves. And yes. w- why is that turn, that metanoia, that turn so difficult yes. for people? Yeah, well, you know, in all of us who grew up Protestant, we really are still stuck in an argument with Catholicism, a 500-year argument. Mm. And what's interesting is that argument became so important for Catholicism that in many ways, Roman Catholicism has redefined itself in an argument with Protestantism. And when you have a 500-year argument, the things that you argue about become more deeply embedded. Ingrained, yeah, yeah, that's interesting. (laughs) So the way that we framed our argument with Roman Catholicism was, you have the wrong way to get to heaven, we have the right way to get to heaven. (laughs) (laughs) And um, and, and so ironically, by having that argument, both sides deepen their obsession with heaven. Yeah. Um, And and I, I mean, this is so incredibly obvious, but when you're taught, I was taught to read every single verse in the Bible in light of a Mm. a heaven-centered narrative, right? Of what happens after you die, that this life is really just like an exam that you take to see if you get entrance into the real stuff, graduate uh, university in heaven, you know? Mm. So, uh, but I remember when uh, it suddenly dawned on me that in the Lord's prayer, we don't pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. May we go to heaven where your will is done, unlike here on earth. That's not what we pray. The whole prayer is for the kingdom to come to earth. I mean, it's so unbelievably obvious. Mm. Or you get to the very last chapter of Revelation, and it doesn't end with us all going to heaven. It ends up with the new Jerusalem coming down to earth. And so, yeah, it's it's there everywhere. But we're trained so well, so much energy goes into keeping us from seeing that very, very obvious thing. And of course, it's not just sermons, but it's hymns and, and, you know, just everything is framed around this uh, invisible narrative. Um, I was reading some of Kester Bruin's work, you know, and one of the things he talks about is this, like, not just Christianity, but really our culture that it uh, kind of starting maybe in the in the late 60s was was desiring to get up and out of here. And whether that was through the space program or LSD or this kind of ecstatic Christianity, it was all this desire to leave the this place of Earth and to to find someplace else to go. Right. Yeah. And and I I think that deep escapism is ingrained within our own faith as a part of that, where um, the the burden of what it means to be human, like our Christianity doesn't get us out of that either. It embeds us deeply within that 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 um, that not even polarity, that tension between both joy and pain. They're inescapable. Right. Yes. Yes. Um, Yes. Yes. Well said. And, and um, yeah, it, it feels like there are these two polarities that, and both seem to be active today. One is, as you say, this sort of escapist modality. Mm-hmm. And then there's this other that is a kind of desperation modality that's, that says, it's all up to us. This is the last yeah. gasp. This is the most pivotal 
moment. So throw your ethics out the window because, you know, like as we're having this conversation, uh, people will be listening to it at all different times. But as we're having this conversation, the hearings are going on for the uh, January 6th committee. Right. So you have just all of these, you know, I, I guess millions of people in the United States who really are okay with throwing out the Constitution and as long as our side wins at the end, it gets to enforce the Constitution. Um, and uh, you, you, there, there's a desperation in it. And I think in that way, mm. both extremes have a certain desperation behind them. Or you yeah. might say despair. This world is insalvageable. There's nothing we can do. So either man the lifeboats because the <laughs> Titanic is sinking. Right. There's no hope. Or pull out your guns and let's stage an insurrection and uh because the titanic is sinking you know yeah, or right. let's have a mutiny because yeah. the the ship is about to sink so oh. it, the, that desperation to me is it, it, i i guess you could say desperate people might run this way and they might run that way the desperation though makes them not often act with a lot of forethought yeah yeah, that's right. I feel like that's where, in some ways, our Buddhist brothers and sisters, you know, teaching. In some ways, it's a real call back to our own Christian roots, that embodied sense yes. of where yes. we are, right? And of, of learning how to breathe in this space, of learning how to face yes. our own fear of death, our own sense of the other, making friends with our enemies along the way. Those things that have always been ingrained, right, within yes. our own our own faith. We're where do we go from here in the midst of this tension that we're in as a, um, for those of us who, who don't want to leave the church, but can't stay in the church, um, that continue to perpetuate s some of the things it's perpetuated. How do we yes. continue to move forward? Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe I, I could say two things about that. Um, uh, one something in, in uh, this book, do I stay Christian? Yeah. That I did on at least two different occasions in the book, because I do these big, overarching reviews of Christian history, yeah. and I put a lot of work. You know, it's easy to write a review like that, and it's also easy for it to be inaccurate. So I really tried to, you know, make sure that I was giving an accurate portrayal in these big narrative arcs. But one of the things that you see is that the Christian faith has been pretty abysmal on a number of occasions. I mean, there <laughs> are some low, 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 low points. Yeah. Um, I mean, you go early, late first century, early second century, when a big sector of Christianity turns anti-Semitic and never turns back. I mean, it infuses into Christianity this ugly, supersessionist, uh, anti-Semitic uh, strain. Mm. I mean, that's a pretty bad thing. And then a couple centuries later, the bishops make a deal with a an authoritarian leader yeah. named Constantine. Constantine. And, um, and I mean, a lot of what we see going on in Brazil and the United States and many other places involve Christian leaders doing similar kind of deals with authoritarian leaders uh, today. That's pretty ugly time. And you get into the, uh, after a, uh, about 1100 or so when uh, you have this the rise of the Crusades and the Inquisitions and then uh, colonialism. And you just think that's a pretty bad run. So the Christian <laughs> faith has had some really, really, really ugly, vicious, 
vile, betraying moments. And interestingly, right around those times are when some of the very, very best moments happen in the Christian faith, Mm. too. And so I I, and and when I step back uh, and I realize I'm quite certain that my Jewish friends could tell me of parallel examples in Judaism. And I'm quite certain my Muslim friends could give me almost identical Mm. uh, uh, patterns in Islam. And then I think, well, let's talk about the United States. Some pretty ugly moments in this country's history, along with some some good moments. And and so then you realize, oh, this is part of the human condition. And and we're always in this struggle of which which will the better angels win or, you know, the the uh, the worse. And and so that I think at the end of the day is part of the human condition which then forces all of us to make a choice. And that is, do we put ourselves in the game? Do we put ourselves in the contest? And do we understand our lives have the chance to lean one way or the other? Yeah. Um, So what are some of the issues that make your approach to Christianity a little different kind of growing up in like thinking through like systematic theology where these are the, you know, here are the, some of the linchpins yes. of the way that you organize faith. And that yes. worked for my life for a while until it didn't work. Right. Yes. Until it felt like a, uh, as I've described sometimes a, a t-shirt I was given as a, as a child yes. to tell to wear. And as I grew, I was still trying to stuff myself inside of this smaller t-shirt and yeah. to act like things were normal. Right. <laughs> it seems like that you've, you've been able to, um, like replace some of the shirts that you're wearing to right size yourself for a humanity that you find to be complex. So what are some of those those organizing ways of looking at your faith today? Let me talk about two of them, um, our, our view of God mm-hmm. and our view of the narrative that we're part of. So okay. let me start with the narrative. Um, I'd, I'd say when, well, just a, a memory comes to mind. Mm-hmm. Um, when I first started writing, I would have all of, my, you know, my sort of evangelical uh, peers be whispering mclaren is a universalist you know um and and so people would get up the courage and they'd say are you a universalist and i would say oh oh it's much 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 worse than that it's much worse than that um and you know they would say what do you mean and i would say universalism is an one way of answering the question who goes to heaven and who goes to hell um uh, it's much worse than that. I don't think that's the right question. Mm. Um, I think the right question is how can we join God in the healing of the earth so that we don't turn the earth into a living hell? Come on. And um, so, uh, and and one way to say it in terms of systematic theology, and, and it's so funny, uh, I was, I'd been a pastor for, oh gosh, over 15 years before I realized I was pre- preaching through the book of Genesis. And I, I realized I'd been given this narrative of a perfect creation and then something called the fall yes. and then a fall in history. And then some people experience salvation or redemption and then they go to heaven and those who don't go to hell. I call that the six line narrative because it's <laughs> one creation, two fall, three 
fallen history, four salvation, five heaven, or six hell. So it's like everything is explainable. The systematic is built around that narrative. Yes, that's right. Um, and I become, and, and well, when I was preaching through Genesis once, I realized if I were reading this book the, as an innocent reader, in, in other words, without being told that I'm supposed to find those six lines, and, and I never would have found it there. And then I realized, of course, my Jewish friends, not one single no. Jewish scholar reads about a perfect creation and no. then a fall. The, the, the term the fall is something they would never use. Um, and so uh, I realized that this narrative has framed everything for Christianity. I think the narrative emerges around the time uh, of Augustine and becomes the dominant narrative after Augustine. But okay. in the early uh, days of Christianity, it wasn't there. And, and by the way, it becomes the dominant narrative in Western Christianity. In Eastern Orthodoxy, that's not the dominant narrative. So that's the first thing. Sorry for that long no, that's discourse great. there. But, um, and then, but what happens is when that's your narrative, it, get, it, it gives you pre-packaged assumptions about what God is like. That's right. And God is primarily a, uh, an absolutist perfectionist judge who is willing to torture people for eternity for a, the, the smallest legal infraction. And in fact, you don't even have to do a legal infraction because it's inevitable yeah. you will yeah. just because the first humans in a story you have to take literally, they committed an illegal infraction. That means all of their ancestors <laughs> will be tortured forever. I mean, talk about an unplausible uh, a storyline for a good God, but it's what we ended up with. And my, one of my other, one another older evangelical uh, who, uh, who like Ray uh, Anderson was very good to me was Dallas Willard. Oh yeah. And um, Dallas used to say, if your view of God is distorted, the more devoted you are, the sicker you are. <laughs> wow. And wow. Uh, and I think there's a lot of truth to that. Yeah. That's that's amazing. That's yeah, I I kind of grew up handed this god that, you know, whose main t-shirt just said omni on it, you know. And so yes, yes. and and I remember Ray saying kind of when you start in the abstraction. Yes. And then try to make yourself your way back to earth, you just can't. Right. Yes, and yes, he yes. used to say things like, you know, at the at the beginning of Jesus's ministry, he could walk on water. At the end, he couldn't carry his own cross. So yes. where is power? Right. Yes. And this idea of yes. power has to be given up for uh, the sake yes. of relationships that are transformative in the earth. Right. Yes. And I think that's one of the things that Christianity has lost in this up and out um, theology yes. or right by might theology. Yes. That we then yes. can have these justifications to other each other <laughs> uh, into yes. oblivion, right? So, so true. And it seems so like at, at times the church that I've been a part of um, uh, all my life, it, it's trying to find the plot amid it all. Yes. And it's there. Yes. It's just covered up um, in so many ways. Yes, I think that's really true. Um I think that's really true. And uh, I remember the first book that I wrote directly about this was came out in 2010. It was called A New Kind of Christianity. Mm -hmm. 
I've been dealing with this from some of my earlier books, but it's that's when I first talked about the six uh, line narrative. And what I realized when I drew that on a napkin one day in a little coffee shop, I realized that's the narrative that's been there my whole life and nobody ever made it explicit. I finally was able to make it explicit after, you know, yeah, however, 45 years or whatever. Um, and once it's explicit, you can ask yourself, is that legitimate or not? And it was interesting when that book came out, this one evangelical scholar basically just went after me because he said, that is the biblical narrative. That's the only one. It's the only one. If you don't hold that narrative, you cannot be a Christian. So uh, it was, I, I was sort of glad that by me making it explicit, it let people say, Yes or no. Yeah, I, I you know, and, and it's one of those things, too, that as soon as you question that narrative, there are a whole lot of places you can't get a job. Um, That's right. Because that narrative really is what makes makes things tick. Yeah. Right. And when you talked about othering, oh, my gosh, that narrative says really that narrative says the world started with everything good. The universe started with everything good. And it ends with some minority experiencing goodness and the vast majority it's experiencing eternal conscious torment. Yeah. Like all yeah. I could say is what kind of a good God oh, would right. even start such a story, right. right? But here's the thing. If that's what God is doing in the world, we should, and we think that's the God we should em emulate, then of course we'll do a lot of othering. Yeah. We're, we're following the example of God. Right. right. Uh, and of course, we'll find ourselves, uh, you know, nodding or, or winking at torture and other kinds of harm. Right. Because it's morally present in the supreme being. That's right. So, uh, yeah. No. I like Alyosha, there's a part of me at some point that had to give the ticket back, you know, that, yes. that, that's that ticket that said, Oh, if this is, if this is who God is, right. Rwanda, Dachau, yeah. you know, the othering of uh, African Americans in our country, whatever that is. And, yeah. and this is what it means to be Christian, to align myself with these things theologically. That's, I, I didn't sign up for that. You know, that's, you know, <laughs> Yes, it's so interesting you say that because a, a fellow I have a lot of respect for named Brian Zahn, a pastor mm. in Missouri. Yeah. Brian Zahn wrote a book called Sinners in the Hands of Angry Christians, I think was the title. <laughs> what a great title. <laughs> and of course, playing on the old Jonathan Edwards, yeah. Sinners in the Hands of an Angry yeah. God. But what I realized as I went through that process I really wasn't deep in my heart afraid of God. I, yeah. I knew God was love. Yes. Uh, I knew uh, that, as it says in John 14, so interesting, people always like to quote John 14, 6, about I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then they missed the verse a couple of verses later where Jesus says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So how many people did Jesus torture? How many people did Jesus kill? How many people did Jesus hate? How many people did Jesus, you know, uh, uh, scapegoat and shame? Um, and, 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 and ironically, by quoting John 14, 6, and not whatever it is, 14, 8 or 9, they, 
you know, anyhow, just crazy how how we we do that. But yeah. so, absolutely, uh, absolutely. I have a question. Um, this is a slightly off topic, but more about you as a thinker in general. Um, and Matt's similar in this, but I see a lot of people in church, and I think uh, in our nation, as they get older, they sort of double down on some of the original thought or their beliefs, yeah. ideologies. I think out of fear. Um, yes. I'm wondering how you move through your life, mm. through your faith, um, while keeping some of those things kind of malleable. And if there is a moment you can think of that um, maybe sparked that, because um, mm. I, I know you you were a fundamentalist, so I'm assuming at yeah. some point there was something that um, changed that. Yeah, you know, I I mean, fundamentalism, um, Jeff, it goes so deep. Um, it really forms how you see the world. So it's, uh, uh, for me, it was a thousand little cuts, you know, for me, it was <laughs> a thousand frustrations, um, more, more like a hundred thousand. And I did my very best to stay fundamentalist. Um, and of course, uh, I, when I heard the word evangelical, um, I thought an evangelical was a more tolerant fundamentalist. But what I found out is no, evangelicals are fundamentalists with some different practices, but fundamentalism still really reigns yeah. under the under the surface. Um, mm. And I did my very best to fix it. And um, I guess that I, I tell a story in a book I wrote called The Great Spiritual Migration, that if there was a moment, it, this was as close as any. Um, I, I was at this retreat, Catholic retreat center with some other people in San Antonio, Texas area. And I was just, my theological struggles were just churning. I, like I was battling with atonement theory in my <laughs> dreams. You know what I mean? Like I was just in such deep theological pain. Let me go, pain. Mel Gibson. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> and um, I, I couldn't sleep. I got up. I took this walk, and they had this beautiful desert garden at this monastery. And I stopped in front of this uh, tree, and I just remember as I stood there, I thought, it's falling apart, hmm. and I can't patch it up. And uh, I, I guess I'm just going to have to let it fall apart and see what I can do with the you know, with the ruins, so mm. to speak. Beautiful. So, um, it, it, it wasn't like a choice. It was, I just, it was a feeling like I cannot keep this structure. I can't patch it up anymore. Mm. It's, mm. it's, it's collapsing. Mm. Yeah. Well, that seems to be the, something that can map over both kind of like our own internal lives. Uh, uh, there's a, there's a sense in which I think some of our construction of Christianity is really about our own internal selves and how we can create a, a place of eternal safety for ourselves. Yes. And so yes. we construct this 
deep kind of feel if God is omni, then in yes. my own sense of deep powerlessness, maybe there's a power that is greater than my fear of it all going yeah. to hell in a handbasket, yeah. it all falling apart. Right. Yeah. And it's what I hear you saying in that is that there's a necessary falling apart, both internally and externally, that is not outside the gospel, but may be summons by the gospel. Yes. You, you, I think that's a really important insight and, and sort of line of inquiry. It reminds me, um, Matt, I was just in conversation with a dear friend, you may have heard of named Mirabai Starr, who doesn't identify as a Christian. She's of Jewish background, but has really been in kind of the Dharmic traditions. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but she, her great love and great focus is the Christian mystic. So, so you would think she's a Christian by the way her love for the mystics and her love for Jesus and all the rest. Yeah, but yeah. Um, Mirabai told me she's working on a book talking about the stages of grief, you know, from Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. Right, and as right. we were talking, I realized this is adulthood. Yes. Like we always talk about yeah. um, denial, anger, mm. bargaining, depression, acceptance. And now they've added a sixth stage, which is meaning. Um, we always talk about those in relation to death, but I think it's what happens in adolescence. <laughs> and it, it's, it's really, it's really the, it's what happens when you're an adult, you realize the world isn't this nice, sweet, easy place, yeah. um, as I was told. And, and so some people, their whole lives are spent in denial. Um, uh, and, and, and some people, their lives are spent in denial and anger. Right. <laughs> and some people, their lives are spent in denial, anger, and bargaining. Um, uh, and, and some people, maybe eventually, that doesn't work. That's what happened to me that morning. My denial, anger, anger, and bargaining <laughs> fell into depression. <laughs> and, and there was no saving it. But guess what? If there's going to be acceptance and meaning, it's not going to happen until you pass through that depression, which probably has a lot to do with the dark night of the soul and other yes, things yes, that we, yeah. we talk about. Yeah. yeah. Well, it, which also seems to be like in my own thoughts about who God is, God was a real thing out there, you know, when I was yes. a kid kind of growing up and, and in some ways the, whether that's called deconstruction or whatever that is that, you know, both I think philosophically, theologically, and then just personally, you know, yes. that the, the Pima children kind of insight that, you know, everything falls apart, then it comes back together. It falls apart. It comes back together. Yes. That's the pattern. Right. And yes. I, I think that there's a part of my Christianity at the beginning that said, if you do it right, you can keep it from falling apart. Yes. And, yes. and I wonder if that's the stage that we're in with some of our Christianity today is that there's yes. still folks that think if we can do it right, we can keep yeah. it from falling apart. If we can do it right, we can keep our country from falling apart. Yes. We can keep these things from happening. And I, yeah. I think that at least internally, it feels like just a, a deep, you use the word desperation that yeah. we're feeling kind of this despair and that yeah. there, you know, there's a sense in which even our ideas of God have to fall apart. Um, so that, yes. yeah, and you talk about mystery, so along with roar and all those things that have been very helpful to me, yeah. you know. Um, yeah. yeah, one of the biggest maybe breakthrough moments in my life 
happened years ago while I was still a pastor and on mm-hmm. my day off, I took the, I would take a long walk along the Potomac River every Thursday that I could manage it. And, um, and I, ha- I just realized I was having all these doubts about God and I was praying about my doubts about God. And I thought, hold it. The fact that I'm praying says that I trust God. Mm-hmm. What am I having doubts about then? Mm. The fact that I, I'm spending my day off walking along this river thinking about God means I actually love God. Yeah. What am I having doubts about then? And I realized I'm not doubting God. I'm doubting my beliefs about God. Yeah. And that was like the first oh. moment when I saw there was a little knife blade that could go in between these things that I yeah. fused together. God was my beliefs about God. Which, by the way, is another word for God was my understandings of God, ah. and and uh, you my know ideas. because I huh? <laughs> yes, yeah. my ideas, my concepts, yeah. and the irony was because I was fundamentalist, I'd memorize so many Bible verses, and as I was walking <laughs> along, I thought of that Bible verse: "Trust in the Lord with all your heart, uh-huh. and do not lean on your own understanding." <laughs> and I thought to myself. <laughs> That includes my theological understanding. Yes. And I remember at that moment, it, it may have been the first moment in my adult life when I exercised faith consciously to say, I'm going to trust the God I do not understand. I'm going to trust in the mystery beyond my understanding because my understanding right now really sucks. <laughs> you know, my understanding <laughs> takes me nowhere. My understanding right. leads me in vicious circles that take me to not good places. Yeah. And, and it was, so trusting was an act of uh-huh. not leaning on my own understanding. Yeah, that's <laughs> so beautiful. I was, I was glad I'd memorized that Bible verse. You know? That's awesome. Uh- that's great. Well, one one of the things that, like, as a denom, we're United Methodists, and one of the things that the denomination that we're struggling with right now, obviously, is just the whole area of human sexuality, um, yes. and um, and and I've watched you over time um, shift in your your um, understanding of human sexuality, and I, I wonder if um, you could talk about that a bit. Um, um, and and then also how you hold open folks that don't think the same way as you do around yes. these things because I, in some ways, this has become kind of a litmus test for who's in and who's out in a way that I don't yes. think it's necessary. I, I, yes. You know what I mean? <laughs> I just yeah, don't yeah, think it's necessary. Yeah. But I I also understand um, the polarization of that. Um, so yeah, yeah. Well, we maybe could come back and talk about that because I think. There, I think in many ways, this, the issue of homosexuality, like the issue of abortion, mm. is like the tip of an iceberg. Yes. And, and it's the thing we talk about, but, but there are things under the surface that are way, way bigger. And they're the things that the, the subjects of abortion and homosexuality become, uh, you know, the permissible thing to talk about. Right. But the deeper things maybe are 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 way more significant. But yeah. the, my story on this very quickly is, I, I you know because of my age, I grew up in an era where fundamentalism didn't have purity culture. Purity culture requires you to talk about sex. We just didn't talk about sex. Um, 
we were so pure we just didn't talk didn't about even it. say the word <laughs> it did not exist we were just hello can we hello so barbie uncomfortable. <laughs> oh my gosh i i when i was a boy and we read the bible at, at after dinner and we kept coming upon this word circumcision and with total innocence i just said what circumcision and when my parents explained it to me i blushed and i thought that can't be in the bible this is just wrong you know <laughs> Because already I internalized that sex just wasn't even part of the discussion. So um, I, when I had just turned 18 years old, senior year of high school, my best, one of my, one of my very best friends uh, came and said, could we take a walk? And, on the, and we took a walk and he told me, I remember exactly where we were on the street where he said, he told me he was gay. And, um, and I because we didn't talk about it, I didn't have even a big theological thing about, is it wrong? I just, it just had to do with sex. So it was, you know, <laughs> so it was, was already wrong. problematic. <laughs> but, but he was my friend and he was one of the best people I had ever met. And so from the mm -hmm. very beginning, I did not have the traditional view on, on uh, homosexuality. I, from the very beginning, I my first real data was that the one of the two or three best people of my age that I'd ever met was gay. And he was obviously in deep self hatred about it and all the rest. And yeah. I, if anything, I just felt like saying you're such a good guy. That's not that big a deal, you know, but I it, it was a big deal for him because mm -hmm. he'd internalized all of this self hatred. And so it was complicated for me. And I was never outspoken. Uh, uh, on the subject, um, I, I like a lot of people. I just tried to avoid the subject because I didn't think it made sense to watch mm. uh, how Christians treated gay people. But what happened was, um, many many years later, I I can't even. I, I would take me some some serious math to figure out about what year this was. But you may know um, the names uh, the name Tony Campolo yeah. and his wife Peggy. Yeah. And Peggy had been very outspoken about LGBT equality. And Peggy called me one day and said, um, hey, Brian, uh, I think you're closer to where I am on this subject than you are to where my husband is. Um, and she said, there's a church in Little Rock, Arkansas, led by a gay pastor, and they would like to invite you to come speak. He really respects you, likes your books. And she said, it would be devastating if he were to invite you and you were to turn him down. Wow. And um, she said, but I need you to know that if you speak there, you know, it's it's uh, Arkansas and th there are the Baptist police who will be paying attention. And if you speak there, they will be sure to paint a target on your back about it. So she said, I guess I'm like the junior high kid who says, so-and-so would like to go out on a date with you. Would you say yes if they ask you? <laughs> and so um, I, I said, if, uh, it just in my heart, I knew I had to say yes. And, and so that meant, you know, going public about uh, that, that I was willing to go public about mm. non, not stigmatizing uh, LGBTQ people. Well, the thing that I had no way of knowing, that was that event where I spoke was either in November or early December, I forget which, I think it was in December, early December. And March of the following year, um, I have four children, one of my sons came out. And then a few months later, one of my daughters came out. 
So I have four children, two of my children are gay. And, um, and I was so glad that I had in a sense already gone public on, <laughs> on that uh, issue before my kids. And I, I'm, I wasn't one of those people who thought that, that, you know, was afraid that my kids were gay. I just never, never even thought about it. it I never thought, never, never crossed my mind. But yeah. um, anyway, uh, that's, that's the too long version of my story on, on the subject. I know that we're um, probably needing to wrap up soon. Um, how do you hold open conversation with folks um, on on in, in this way? Um, folks that 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 have not either had those experiences, but are still yeah. struggling to say, "Well, that's a bridge too far." Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I, I mean, the truth is, I don't think. Well, it's to me, it's very ironic for Methodists because <laughs> yeah. Methodists have women ministers. Oh, and if there are right. verses that say you can't have women ministers. So the people who yeah. won't accept gay people because of uh, because of Bible verses, they can quote the six so-called clobber yeah. passages. Yeah. Well, you can find those kinds of passages about having women ministers. So to me, or it's just people. always. <laughs> yes. So what this yeah. says to me is that this issue isn't the issue okay um that's what when i said the tip yeah. of the iceberg so when people want to talk to me about it i just from the start i i know that this issue is not the issue okay there are deeper issues and the deeper issues usually have to do with belonging hmm. that if i were to come out in acceptance of gay people my parents would reject me or my congregation would fire me or the top three donors in my church would withhold their giving. And so what I realize is that these are almost always issues of belonging way more than they're issues of, uh, you know, biblical interpretation. Um, so I start with just empathy for the predicament that people are in with belonging. And, um, and then uh, what I, I guess I try to do is I just try to say, well, listen, if you want to reject gay people, then you need to reject me too. I'm not gay, but I'm uh, gay people are my family. Gay people are my friends. And so if you're going to reject people, you're going to have to reject me too. Um, mm. And a lot of people say, okay, I'm happy to do that. You know, <laughs> but I, but I, I suppose what I, what I want to do is I want to say um, this issue of belonging goes both ways. It does. So for you to keep yes. the good graces, stay in the good graces of these people who you know they'll reject you, just realize that that has consequences too of other people you will then have to reject. Mm. Beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you. Um, a couple rapid fire questions. Um, who are you reading right now um, that is having an impact on the way you're imagining the world yourself and others? Um, so I, it's funny you say that. I just, <laughs> uh, there was a book I was supposed to read in graduate school that yeah. I never read Yeah. Um, by Stanley Fish called Self-Consuming Artifacts. And I found a copy from a, a, Look at that, a, public a used library. bookstore from uh, a public library that ended up at a used bookstore. And so uh, that's uh, that's the book I'm reading right now. Just it's it's helping me understand myself as a writer. It's a book about literary criticism and it's just absolutely fascinating. Um, uh, but I, I, if I were to say two of the most meaningful, important books that helped 
It's changed the way I see the world. Uh, one of them is called Braiding Sweetgrass by uh, Robin Wall Kimmerer. Yeah. I just can't recommend that book highly enough. Uh, Great book. Helping us see the world from an indigenous mm -hmm, perspective. Mm -hmm. And then uh, uh, I, I read a novel a couple of years ago, probably the best novel I've read since I was in, in graduate school, uh, called The Overstory. Um, and uh, a book about trees but it's a book that makes you see the world differently. Okay, um, that's great. Yeah, that's great. Instead of when you're done with the book, instead of thinking, this is this is a world of human beings with trees in it, you think, this is the planet of trees with human beings in it. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. What's uh What's on your playlist, music-wise? Oh my goodness, I'm a big singer-songwriter person, yeah. so um, I'm always looking for you know great singer-songwriters. Uh, Two of my, well, if I were probably three of my favorites these days uh, are, of course, I'm, I've, I've been a Jackson Brown okay. fan yeah. since I was a kid. <laughs> uh, Dil, Bob Dylan. I mean, I it just never get tired of Dylan. Um, but there are a couple of, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with David Wilcox. Oh, yeah. Uh, one yeah. of my favorite singer songwriters. Yeah. Another is. Uh, uh, Carrie Newcomer, phenomenal yeah. uh, singer-songwriter. Um, and then uh, uh, another is Andy Gullihorn. Oh, yeah. my goodness. What a Andy's great. Andy's oh. great. Yeah, yeah. I've gotten to know and him. One, yeah. Oh, and, and another one of my favorites just passed away last year. Is a good friend, friend, McKendry. Okay. Um, just beautiful music. Yeah. What poetry are you reading? Um, let's see. Uh I, uh, I read poetry all the time, and uh, often it's poetry I read uh, because I use it in talks that I give. Okay. Uh, but you know, Mary Oliver, Wendell Berry are uh -huh. uh, uh, people I'm always going to because their poetry works really well. Yeah. Uh, Padre Gotuma is yeah. a dear friend, and uh, I I love his work. He has a a poem uh, called. I, I believe it begins God of change and it is just a, really relevant to a lot of things we've talked about today. That's great. Brian, thanks so much for your time with us. We just can't thank you enough for, uh, for just your openness and generosity of heart and spirit and mind, your gift to not only our lives, but the, uh, the world writ large. So thank you. Thank you. Well, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Keep up the great work. Okay. We'll see you. God bless you. Hello, neighbor. How are you? Really wanna shower you with love. Hello, neighbor, how are you? Really wanna challenge you to love.